If you have a brain, you have bias. So let's just own it. Some biases help us by simplifying our decision-making process. Other biases hold us back by impacting who gets hired and promoted, and even who we approach to be our friends. Welcome to Breaking the Bias, a podcast where we interview impact makers who are breaking the bias when it comes to inclusion and equity, because sharing our stories is how real belonging happens. What we see right now, just like in the 70s, is that childbearing is the single biggest explanatory factor for gender gaps and economic outcomes. True then, true now. You look at men and women's earnings, for instance, and they trend, they're pretty similar and they trend pretty similarly up until the point that they become parents. And that's where the gender gap emerges. No matter which side of the Roe v. Wade debate you lean towards, it's clear from the data that abortion access is not only a social issue, but also an economic issue. I'm Holly Corbett, VP of Content for Consciously Unbiased. This is a special episode of Breaking the Bias because we wanted to share two behind the scenes interviews done at the beginning of June 2022 before the recent SCOTUS ruling. I spoke to Caitlin Myers, professor of economics at Middlebury College, and Diana Green Foster, PhD, professor at the University of California, San Francisco, for a Forbes article that covers some ways the research illustrates how overturning Roe v. Wade could impact the economy and society at large. I'll share that article link in the show notes. First up is my conversation with Professor Caitlin Myers, who, along with more than 150 other economists, filed an amicus brief to highlight the impacts of abortion legalization in the US and model what would happen if Roe v. Wade was overturned. Now, on to our interview. I do fully understand that for somebody who believes that a fetus is fully a person, equivalent to a 10-year-old person, there is nothing anybody can say about the consequences of not being able to access an abortion for the mother that to those people are gonna, are gonna justify allowing abortion to be legal. Yeah. But that's not the situation for most of the US public, right? I mean, it, you just have to think about, you know, somebody who's had an early term miscarriage versus somebody who has lost a child, God forbid. Most of us don't treat those, those two losses equivalently. Mm-hmm. Most people don't place equivalent weight on the personhood of a fetus. And for people who are in that majority viewpoint, it should matter to them what is happening to the mother and to the other family members in families where people are seeking abortions and not able to get them. What about, I mean, obviously there's been a lot in, in reading the um the leaked draft opinion. Um, what's your response to the argument that those in favor of overturning Roe versus Wade, that abortion accent is no longer relevant to women or their families? <laughs> that argument is jaw dropping and it's just completely unsupported by a mountain of rigorous evidence. And so it's really shocking to me. Like it's really, that's really dispiriting to me. I, I could actually understand much better uh, arguments the court might make about, I don't know, constitutional law or personhood, right? Like an economist mm-hmm. don't have a lot to say about that. Yeah. But for the court to say 
oh, really, you know, we don't have any way to know if this is going to impact anybody anyway. And, you know, Mississippi in their argument is basically telling us that all of these policy advances now allow women to kind of effortlessly balance. And I am, I mean, I'm, I'm exaggerating a bit, but what they're saying is like, we have all these policy advances that now make it possible for people to balance uh, parenthood and work with very little sacrifice. And that argue, I don't even know why you need an economist to tell you that argument yes. is wrong. Like, I think if you just know any working family, you understand that the American economy is hard on working families. Mm-hmm. And I have four kids myself. I've definitely wow. made, yeah, I, I have, I have made a decision to incur those costs and it's worth it. But the idea that the costs aren't there, mm-hmm. right. That's the part that's just absurd. And I I can go into any of the evidence you want, but that's my. Yeah. I mean, and the fact that 80% of the caregiving responsibilities continues to fall on women's shoulders, it just so disproportionately impacts us. Mm -hmm. Um, But I did want to touch upon, I mean, regression analysis is not my wheelhouse. And I don't think I have to go too deep into this in the article, but maybe just like briefly help me unpack in the economist brief um, how casual inference tools have been used to isolate and measure the impacts of abortion legalization in the United States. So yeah, we- causal, causal inference. We're not causal. causal about yes. It. Yes. Um, okay. So let me give you a fairly quick primer. It's super cool. And okay. then, and then let me give you an example, one of many. Okay. So economists are really serious about the science and social science. Mm-hmm. We're really serious about the scientific method and isolating and measuring causal effects. Like mm-hmm. not just giving up when we say, oh, correlation isn't causation, but actually mm-hmm. saying, but sometimes it is. And how do we know when it is? Yes. So the gold standard for figuring out a causal effect is a randomized control trial. So in the case of abortion, that would look like, I don't know, I randomize half of American women to have access to abortion and half not. And then I see what happens to them, which is not ethical or feasible, right? Yeah. But what we can do, even when we can't run a a RCT, a randomized controlled trial, is we can look for what we call natural experiments. And these are situations where we basically say, look, we, the researchers, didn't randomize abortion access, but something like nature, something happened that kind of did it for us. And they're very powerful, those natural experiments. And that's where most of our evidence comes from. So let me give you one example of a natural experiment. It's from the Turnaway study. Are you familiar? I yeah. just spoke to Dr. Foster about the okay. Turnaway study. So yeah. She's amazing. And I guess I'll still use it as an example. Let me tell you why I initially was skeptical of it and then was won over. Mm-hmm. So as you know, the, the natural experiment here is we have hundreds of women approaching providers and some of them are finding out when they get there, they're just past the gestational age cutoff, they're turned away. Some of them are just under it, they get the abortion. So the idea is it's a natural experiment because you can compare the turnaway group to the group that gets in just under. Mm -hmm. And I was really skeptical of that as a natural experiment when I first heard about it, because I was like, well, there could be all sorts of unobserved reasons that the women who get there just too late showed up too late. Maybe unobserved, like we couldn't observe it, but they were the ones that were more likely to be in an abusive relationship or more likely to have trouble getting childcare. They already we're having more difficult life circumstances. So maybe the reason they, they kind of, they, they have even more difficult circumstances when we look at them after, they, that was gonna happen anyway, like things were already very bad for them. So I was skeptical until Diana worked with um, two economists, Sarah Miller and Laura Wary, and they connected these women to their Experian credit reports. I read that 
I love that paper up until right. And that's what convinced me. I was like, if my story is true, if my like skeptical story is true, you would see that the turnaway group is starting to look worse before they ever Mm -hmm. experience the unintended pregnancy. You don't see it at all. They look super, super similar right up until that pivotal moment. Which is so fascinating because credit reports don't, they're not looking at your gender or parenthood status or any of that. Right. This is objective evidence of a huge financial shock and coming from a natural experiment. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, they weren't randomly assigning women to not be able to get abortions. That would be unethical, but like basically the experiment's doing it for them. Mm-hmm. One other example I'll give you really quickly, since you know that one, um, I have a paper on Texas HB2, which was a trap law in 2013. Mm-hmm. It went into effect on November 1st, 2013 in Texas, and just about overnight shut half their abortion clinics. And they've, most of them never reopened. So mm-hmm. Texas has been getting shocked for a decade now. So um, what that meant was in some parts of Texas, travel distance suddenly went from zero miles to 200 because the clinic closed. And in other parts of Texas, it didn't change because the clinic could stay open. They managed to hang on. And so I have a paper that compares what happened in the areas where travel distance gets shocked Mm. compared to the areas where it doesn't. And that's also a natural experiment. And I show that up until like leading up to the point that that happens, They have really similar abortion rates. And then when travel distance gets shocked, you see that in the areas where it goes up, a bunch of women suddenly can't reach providers. Mm -hmm. And that's how we know the causal effect of travel distance. So that's another example. Yeah. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense. Um, I I did want to touch upon the ways, like in what ways might overturning Roe v. Wade have a different economic impact today than it might've had before the 1973 decision? Like what's changed in terms of women in the workforce? Um, so let me talk about, let me, let me first nuance that up a little bit. Um, my answer to that depends crucially on whether we're talking about Roe is overturned and half the states ban and half the states don't, mm-hmm. or whether we're talking about Roe is overturned and it, the whole country goes dark. I think right now we're looking at the first one. Yes. Yeah. If we end up in a situation, there are people who are already kind of predicting the second one. I, I'm not one of them, but mm-hmm. it's important to realize there are people who think that's where we're heading. Um, my answers are going to be really different. Okay. So, so what I want to say is if we're talking about some states go dark and abortions available in the rest, we're not rolling the clock back to 1965. We're rolling the clock back to about 1970. In 1970, abortion had been legalized in California, New York, Washington, D.C., Washington, Alaska, and Hawaii. Mm -hmm. And women were traveling in droves to New York, California, and D.C., like huge numbers. So that's what we're rolling back to. And what we're going to see again is that women are going to flood out of the states that ban to get abortions in the states where it's still available. But, and this ties into that travel distance paper, they won't all make it. So what we know, um, we can predict with some confidence that about three quarters of the women are going to make it to a provider still. It's going to be really hard on them. They're going to incur like a bunch of extra stress and strain and costs. They're going to be delayed, but they're going to get there. And about a quarter won't. And so what we're, and those quarter that, that won't get there, we're talking about the poorest women, the most vulnerable women in an already poor and vulnerable population. Mm -hmm. And so 
in a sense, like this is all, this all harkens back to 1970. That's how it was then too. Women with means got out. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they found a way, they found a provider. It was the poor women who did it. And that's how it's going to be again. Um, and so in that way, it'll be similar, but there are some differences. So I would point to a couple of really key differences. Um, and they're not all about the economy, but I think they're important to mention. So one, it's not the era of the coat hanger anymore. Women who are looking to self-induce will be looking to order medication abortion. It's safe and effective. Big question mark about how much states are going to crack down and surveil that and how accessible it'll be, but it's a big difference. Mm-hmm. Um, but then in terms of just the overall impacts of childbearing, um, I'm not aware of any evidence that that's substantially changed. Like what we see right now with contemporary data is men and women's, let me back up. What we see right now, just like in the seventies, is that childbearing is the single biggest explanatory factor for gender gaps and economic outcomes. Mm -hmm. True then, true now. Mm -hmm. You look at men and women's earnings, for instance, and they trend, they're pretty similar and they trend pretty similarly up until the point that they become parents. And that's where the gender gap emerges. And what happens when they become parents, if you're a man, not much. It's like not much to your increase, I think, for every child you get, right? Yeah, men actually can get, in fact, they might get some benefit. And then for yeah. women, it falls off a cliff. Yes. Um, so women's earnings decrease by about a third, and it is a permanent shock. There is nothing about any policy that's been passed in the past 50 years, I mean, that has gotten rid of, it's still there. We see it, right? We see it in the data. Yeah. And women take career breaks. 43% of women as caregivers have to take a career break and then their salary drops. I have to find the data, but I think it's like 38% for each year. Like that's, that's a last impact. So we're so behind the ball. Yeah. And one of the things, I mean, that's exactly right. And one of the things that was extra jaw dropping for me in this case that the economist brief is really responding to is that Mississippi puts forth this argument in this case that there's been like all these policy advances in, in paid leave and childcare subsidies. Build Back Better got shut down. We have no paid leave. I know. <laughs> and not only, not only is that true, but the women who get abortions are disproportionately, remember, poor. They're mm. more likely to be shift workers. They don't have access to paid leave. Almost none of them have access to paid leave. Very few of them. I mean, a lot of them don't have access to leave at all. Mm-hmm. And they're looking at childcare costs that are about $10,000 a year. That's the average price of childcare. I just you read it. That. It went up 40% during the pandemic. It's now 14,117. I'm like, that's that's for per child. That's who can right. afford that? And even if they could afford it, let's suppose that they managed to snag a subsidy. These are shift workers. It is extremely difficult to schedule childcare when you don't know what your schedule is going to be. And it's varying all over the place and you could get called in. And these women mostly are already parenting, right? Mm-hmm. And they're like, how do I keep my job? and support the children I have when I'm facing, like, I don't have paid leave, I can't afford childcare. And if they're gonna fall back on the social safety net and and not work for a while, which frankly is what, you know, that's perhaps the most straightforward path for a woman having a newborn. Um, Welfare benefits in most of the banned states are laughably low. So like for a woman in Mississippi, the mat, they just raised it, uh, but the max benefit for a family of three um, went up from $170 a month to 220 
Wow. Like that's, that's what you've got to fall back on. Wow. And so the idea, like it just, I, I actually don't get angry about ethical disagreements around like kind of personhood or the disagreements about constitutional law. I understand and can really engage those conflicts, but there just shouldn't be any disagreement about the fact that the American economy is hard on mothers, right? Mm-hmm. Like we, we need to all acknowledge that as a fact. If this is really about to happen, like it looks like it is, um, and if we care about children and if we care about our most vulnerable children, we need to get really serious about finally stitching up that incredibly frayed safety net. Can can you explain, so abortion restrictions obviously not only impact women's economic well-being, but also their, their current and future children. Can you maybe just explain that in your own words, why exactly, and maybe the long-term impacts of that? So it... I mean, I'm trying to think about a succinct answer. I might not manage it. Um, there's really two ways in which abortion access affects families and not just women. The, the first is that most women seeking abortions in the U.S. today already have children. And most of them are low income and, and struggling to support their families. And we know when they don't get abortions that they want, that they suffer financial setbacks, like tremendous ones. That impacts the children they already have. The second thing we know is that women who use abortion to delay a severely mistimed birth until they feel ready, they do so, as a result of doing so, they invest more in their education, they invest more in their jobs, and they establish greater financial security to support those future children. Mm -hmm. Um, Women don't randomly seek abortion. Women seek abortion for reasons, for good reasons. And again, I don't think it's callous to talk about those reasons. And they use access to abortion to make sure that their children are are wanted and cared for and and that they can support them. And so we can expect to see them struggle a lot more without abortion access. Yeah, and the two other things I wanted to touch on, you know, why is this not only a women's issue, but everybody's issue? And I did wanna touch on the, you know, how we could go backwards on, you know, it impacts racial equality. So first, why is it not just a women's issue? It's everybody's issue. Well, what I would say is everybody, I'd like to believe that we live in a world where everybody cares about women and children and families and abortion access affects women and children and their families. That said, I'll also, you know, I've just got to say, we already know that, that men don't bear a great deal of the financial and labor market repercussions of cost of childbearing right now. Um, you know, women, women are going to bear the brunt of this. Yeah. Um, and in terms of racial equality, yeah. So if we're talking about a scenario in which half the states ban and half the states don't, we're returning to a world where women with means will continue to get abortions and poor women will be prevented from doing so. And we know that those increases in travel distance because of these these strong associations between socioeconomic status and race in our country and age, let me say, we know that the women who are most affected by this are going to be women who are young. The women who are most affected are young women, women of color, poor women, particularly living in urban areas in the deep South and the Midwest. Like that's where you should look for uh, kind of the, the big effects. Mm. And is there anything else that I should 
that I haven't asked you that you think is important to add in terms of the economic impact? No, I think I think you asked. These are good questions. I think you asked all the all the questions. Um, I'll add one little caveat to some of my predictions. Uh, that is a caveat about why things might end up being worse than I'm predicting. Um, so when I talk about how many women can get out and of the banned states and how many can't, mm-hmm. I am strictly talking about how many women can figure out how to travel 400 miles each way get a hotel, get an abortion, right? I'm actually assuming, and like this is coming from statistical modeling, I'm assuming that if they get there, the providers can provide services to them. I'm assuming that basically the providers that are gonna remain can absorb this huge outflow. Mm-hmm. And that's really not at all true in the, in the short run at least, right? So like I, I, my students just conducted a survey of abortion appointment availability. It's already not oh, great yeah. in some areas. So, you know, I think the providers are going to be adapting and adjusting, but I think it's perfectly possible that that we're going to see women, even in states where abortion is legal, having trouble accessing it because the providers are overwhelmed. And I think we'll see women who could do make the trip, but just can't get an appointment. And that's a reason the numbers might be bigger. Next, I interviewed Diana Green Foster, Ph.D., professor at the University of California, San Francisco, and lead author of the landmark Turnaway Study which examines the effects of unwanted pregnancies on women's lives. Here's what she had to say. You know, what would you say to critics who argue that looking at the economics of um, abortion laws are heartless or or callous? We could talk for the rest of the time about that. Uh, (laughs) First of all, I think it's really important to um, to never insinuate that poor women should get abortions, like that somehow the idea is that um, if you can't afford a child, you shouldn't have one. That is not what this is about. Um, This is about people who don't want to have a baby being, letting them decide whether it's a good time or not. And often people give the reason that they don't have the money to pay for a child. It's about 40% but it's rarely the only reason. So these are unwanted pregnancies and they know in addition to it being the wrong time and their health is poor and the relationship is bad that they cannot afford a child. So it's not the only reason, it's rarely the only reason people give. And when we make people have a child when they're not ready, they become poor, their existing children become poor, their chance at having a wanted child later when circumstances improve, that becomes lower. So it's really kicking off a whole set of economic hardships that the the pregnant person did not choose. Hmm. Thank you. And I, I, I wanna make sure that I'm really honing in on why the Turnaway study in particular provides um, an accurate, reflection of abortion's impact on women's economic well-being. So if you yeah. could just explain that. It's it's a perfect study for this because it's not just all low-income people. It's about people, the exact population of people who seek abortions, who yes, are disproportionately poor, but they're not entirely poor. And it is all it is the consequences when you want an abortion and can't get one. So we have the people who want abortion and did get one. We can look at their economic trajectories 
And we can then see people in that exact same economic situation, what happens if they can't get an abortion? What happens to their economic well-being, their kids, their you know future prospects? So it's a perfect study for, I mean, it's terrible timing that right now we actually need these data because this is exactly what will happen when the Supreme Court uh, enable states to prevent people from getting abortions. Mm. And it was nearly a thousand women from what was it, 2008 to 2016? So an eight year study roughly? Yeah, I mean, we piloted in 2007, we recruited from 2008 to 2010, and we followed people from 2008 to 2016. Okay, okay. Um, and we've uh, been working on it since. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God you have been because um, it's just so, it's so needed right now. And, um, you know, I pulled all the stats from the study. There were a lot of, I love the one, you know, page fact sheets, which I'm linking to from the article. Um, can you kind of unpack what some of the underlying factors are, why women who are denied abortions are four times more likely to live below the federal poverty line? Um, yeah, four times higher odds of living below the poverty line, just to clarify. Yeah, um, okay. Uh, why is uh, that we see an immediate drop in full-time employment? And yes, public assistance goes up, but it's not enough to um, uh, mitigate the um, loss of employment income. And it is not the case that child support goes up. It's not the case that, um, you know, that public assistance is enough to support a family. It's, it's hugely lacking. I mean, not just that it's not enough money, but some people um, aren't eligible because of the number of kids they've already had or they time out. So when you look at food stamps, which is a little bit better a measure of economic hardship because you can't time out of it. It's a little bit more needs-based. Um, you can see that very high sustained higher levels of food stamps for people who are denied abortions. And another metric is um, we ask people uh, whether they have enough money for just basic living needs. And there we see that people who are denied abortions are more likely to report that they don't have enough money and it lasts for the whole five years that we studied people. Probably you saw um, the credit report study. So this is led by an economist at the University of Michigan. And what's super cool about it is that if you look at archived credit reports, you can look at people before they ever even became pregnant and confirm that the two groups, those who received and those who were denied were the same for three years leading up to the pregnancy and different after the pregnancy. And she shows, um, I can send you the, the real paper if you don't have it, but yeah. she shows greater debt, greater chance of, of eviction, greater dance, uh, chance of foreclosure, all these public records of economic hardship from a you know, source, the credit agency, which has no idea about pregnancy or childbirth or anything. This is just mm -hmm. a, you know outsider view of the person's economic situation. I, I was also wondering, in, in what ways might overturning Roe have a different economic impact today um, than it might have before the 1973 decision? Like, what, because I know that I, I was reading the, the um, leaked draft and they were talking about all the moder modernizations that have been made, but what's changed with women in the workplace in 2022? Okay, that's not what I, I was going to answer something different based on your lead up. 
one, <laughs> one thing that's different before, I don't know about the workplace so much, but okay. one thing that's extremely different from pre-Roe is that there are medication abortion pills. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and pre-Roe, there were just in the years before Roe, there were a few states you could go to. So New York and California, for example, legalized abortion earlier, really wealthy people could travel. Now we'll have about half the states banning abortion, half not. So potentially people could travel, but it'll be the people with a car, money, time off work, childcare, and the knowledge that they can do it, who will travel. Other people can order medication abortion pills Mm-hmm. Um, but that also requires internet and, uh, you know, knowledge and a mailbox. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also people who are already sick will not be able to travel or undocumented or uh, minors without a car. Lots of people will be excluded. So one thing that's different now than pre-row is how much, or maybe it's just exaggerating that what must have existed pre-row is so wealthier and people will be able to get their abortion and poor people won't. Mm-hmm. And that difference means that um, these economic hits are going to disproportionately fall on people who um, can't afford it. Mm-hmm. And it's not, I think, don't want to trivialize the economic hit for people who are able to travel. That can be thousands of dollars. And there will be plenty of middle-class people who hawk their belongings to be able to do that. It's not like that's easy for everybody, mm-hmm. but some people will be able to do it and other people will not. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it, it, abortion restrictions um, obviously not only impact women's economic well-being, but also you know those of their current and future children. And can you, I just wanted to spell this out in the article. Can you explain how exactly and, and kind of talk about some of the long-term impact of that, like generational wealth and? Um, so we we looked at both what happens to people's existing children and also what are their chances of having intended children later and what are the circumstances of that? So looking at the children they already had when they became pregnant, it's often a reason people give for wanting to have an abortion is to take care of the kids they already have. And not only that, but having recently given, given birth is a is a, a risk factor for not realizing you're pregnant and therefore not being able to get an abortion in time. So it is there is a, a you know having very closely spaced births is a, another problem that's going to happen with this. Um, mm-hmm. And people don't realize they're at risk for pregnancy again so soon after delivery. Yes. Yeah. So taking care of existing kids, we see that existing kids are more likely to be living in poverty, more likely to be living in a house without enough money for basic living needs, and also less likely to achieve developmental milestones. So this is these are things like um, gross motor, fine motor, language, and social emotional. And I can send you a book on that, a book, a paper on that too, if you want. Yeah. Yeah. I would. And love then that. finally the set of kids. So the child born because the mom was denied an abortion. Um, how does that kid fare compared to the next kid born to a woman who's able to get an abortion? Because many people who have abortions actually want to have kids in the future. They just know that the circumstances now, either the time or the man or their health or the money, something isn't working that they don't want to have this kid now. They want to wait and have it under better circumstances later. 
and one really important thing is that when people are denied abortions, they're just less likely to have an intended pregnancy later. It can be that they're raising the kids they the kid they just got that they weren't prepared for. And, um, and another is that those better circumstances just don't are less likely to emerge when you're denied an abortion. When you're raising a kid you can barely afford, your life doesn't hit a level of stability that where you can feel like you can have yet another kid. Yeah. And I think also I want to talk about, you know, there's so much info out there about the cost of childcare in America. I think it's like $1,000 a month for an infant. And then if you have other children and then couple that with the gender and racial wage gap, it's, it's really hard to remain yeah. in the workplace and financially take care of yourself. So I'll put some of those stats in there. Um, I, mean, I wish the priority, if people want to be, if they, people were sincere about this being a pro-life, pro-child, they would start with fixing all the social safety net for, for low-income and families and families with disabled kids. They would not start by making people have kids that they can't afford and can't support. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and I wanted to touch, of course, upon you, you touched on this already, but how would overturning Roe um, impact racial equity? I mean, people who seek abortions are disproportionately people of color. So it's already hitting a population that is um, disadvantaged tends to be disadvantaged. And in fact, it's disadvantaged probably that lead is makes unintended pregnancy more likely. Um, and when Roe is overturned, uh, it, you know, the, the most privileged among people who become pregnant will be able to get abortions and the least privileged will not. And so it will exacerbate these health disparities, these economic disparities, these um, racial ethnic disparities. Um, and, and why are abortion restrictions not only a women's issue, but everybody's issue? Yeah, so um, most directly, some men become pregnant because trans men become pregnant and non-binary people become pregnant. And uh, when women become pregnant, uh, they often have male partners whose lives are also affected. And is there anything else that you think is important to add that I haven't asked you? I, I think it's super important to frame this as um, an issue that affects women's own decision-making about their lives and their families to show it's not irresponsible people who are in this situation. It is people who are trying to make a decision that is responsible, that to take care of the kids they already have, to plan their futures, to have kids later with the right guy under the right circumstances. So, and when we take that decision away from people and you know, when the government decides when they have a baby, their outcomes are worse. You know, this is an issue where people can decide what's best for themselves. Mm -hmm. and, the, and the ramifications are just humongous and not just for that person, but for her family, her future. Yeah, framing it as, as, you know, you can't think that this is, that it's callous to talk about poverty when what we're talking about is overriding people's own 
life course, their own family decisions. This is not callous. This is respectful to consider what to let people decide for themselves what their circumstances can support and what they want out of life. You can learn more about our guests and get show notes at consciouslyunbiased.com slash listen. And we want to hear from you. Please subscribe and rate Breaking the Bias on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And drop us a note to let us know if there is a topic you really want to hear about or a guest you want to have on the show. Thanks for listening to Breaking the Bias.